Christian Wagner, and I'm the Militant Thomist. So we are going to be diving in to this very long stream by Jay Dyer, Disproving the Five Ways of Thomas Aquinas and Actus Purus. So this should be very fun, um, and it's not going to be, uh, he, he's going to bring, uh, well, I'm assuming because I watched like the first five minutes of it, I didn't really, I wanted to be fresh, you know, get, get live reactions. But I'm assuming he's going to bring in, and he mentioned at the beginning that he was going to bring in a lot of stuff about historical theology regarding St. Maximus the Confessor and St. John of Damascus. Now, I have read The Fount of Orthodoxy, and I have read his Ambiguum, but that's not really what I'm concerned with. You guys know, as James White says, I am a dogmatician. I'm not a historian. So the historical theological questions will have to be tabled. But I should be able to uh, get into some of the philosophical and theological questions that he uh, that he brings up. So before we get into that, remember to become a patron at patreon.com slash militantomist. And if you want to learn more stuff and help me out at the same time, go to christianbwagner.com slash shop and get some of the books that I've reprinted. I will be reprinting, uh, in the future at least, some more philosophical manuals, which would be more relevant to this. But... I just don't have the time at the moment, so I have not been able to get to that. But I am working through uh, the Skoda set. I've gotten volume two edited and uh, and put in, so that should be on sale soon. So get excited about that. It's on enjoyment. And let me think. I cannot think of anything else. So yes, it is the Song of Kings. First time watching you live. Oh. It's going to be fun. Pacifist Jamie. Oh, come on now. Ooh. Yeah, Actus Purus. So uh, I, I guess first uh, I could go into a little bit about my history with J. Tyre. <laughs> so um, about a year ago, uh, I responded. No, I posted uh, the the Diamond Brothers uh, video on Jay Dyer. And I posted and I was like, this is hilarious, guys. You should watch it. This was back when I had like 500 followers. I didn't even have a YouTube channel. Um, I just had the blog. Uh, maybe had two or 300 readers. So uh, that 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 was back then. Uh, if you guys remember, I wasn't even Militant Thomas back then. I was still Anglican back then. But he responded to me and told me to go into his Discord and debate him. 
And I was like, okay. I was actually in the church office at the at the church which I worked at at that time. And I went into his Discord, and uh, we had a little voice chat discussion. He did his thing where he started questioning me and questioning me and questioning me. And then he asked me uh, if there was any potency in God. And like a good Thomist, um, like a good scholastic, I distinguished. And I said, there is no active potency in God, but I mean, there is no passive potency in God, but there is active potency, which is um, basically power, the ability to actualize another potency that would be active potency. And then Jay Dyer told me I was dumb and stupid and retarded and that I didn't know Thomism and that he had studied Thomism for 20 million years and I was stupid and he's read the Summa five times. And then he blocked me. So <laughs> that is that that that's about all from that story. But I guess we can go into a little bit about what Actus Purus means. So active Actus Purus means uh, that God is pure act. So he has no passive potency, which means basically that he has no imperfection. So when it comes to God being infinite and infinite, um, he has he does not have the passive potency that is finitude, but he is complete and total act. Now, when it comes to, we can make distinctions within the Godhead, but remember, these are virtual distinctions, not real distinctions. There's no separations. There's no parts. So we can make a distinction between first act and then second act. And second act would be will and intellect. And we can also make a distinction between um between active potency and then actuality so that that is really about it but um sound bites for the noobs in the future i need to start doing sound bites i know i know i should i know i should maybe i'll i'll get lexi to start doing sound bites now that i'm only doing like one video a day rather than two videos a day Dyer's Discord needs sensitivity training. Come on, Caden. That sounds so wimpy. Sensitivity training? Really, don't promote Jay. Yeah. Okay. And I think I'm thinking during this, I want to keep the I want to keep the live chat up because I think that might be just as entertaining as Jay Dyer. And this is going to be a little bit uh, I'm going to be a little bit uh flippant too. Because honestly, some of this, some of the stuff he says is obviously just going to be funny, and yeah. Uh, what do I think about uh, presuppositional arguments? Um, they're just Kantian and Protestant. That that's about all. Cornelius Van Til, in the early twentieth century, basically uh, came up with uh, presuppositional uh, apologetics, and then hated a bunch on Saint Thomas and got his epistemology from Kant, and then that's basically uh, taking a foothold in Westminster Seminary, especially with uh, Dr. Gregory Bonson. And I was reformed, so I had uh, I was within this sort of scope of presuppositional apologetics. It's, it's Protestant nonsense. Wagner wave. Christian and Paul versus Dyer? Nah. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, no, no. We need the other Paul moderating. And just uh, and just uh, use use the J Dyer voice the whole time. Okay. 
Yeah, paleocrat's been doing his case for Catholic presuppositionalism. That's a bit dangerous. Uh, I've been I've been talking with a friend who is uh, he he was uh, in undergrad with me, and he did most of his work in philosophy, and he knows all this stuff a lot better than me. So I've been asking him to see if he could come on, maybe if uh, maybe if we um, force him into it. When Corey offered to wrestle Dyer, <laughs> Corey would kill him. Okay, so I guess we will we'll start with the Dyer wave. This intro is very entertaining, so I, I kind of want to listen to it. The whole position is absurd and imagined. I mean, I'm not. I'm arguing a very specific thing about hey, in this the world. machine I'm talking to you about are human beings. It's not an absurd world. The world I'm talking about that's a is paradigm a assumption that you think humans are merely biological machines. Yep. Do you uh, have evidence you, that I'm made of any? He doesn't have the phronema, bro. Anything else than an atom, than a set of molecules. This is you, ridiculous. you believe you wrote your book. So your book was the work of JF and JF's mind, right? It wasn't the process of a determined machine, right? It was the process of a determined machine. It was the so, process so you of neurons in my mind. You didn't have, and you're not making your own arguments right now. They're just a chemical determined process. Absolutely. So you're not making arguments. Thank you. I've won the debate. All right. Bye. Interestingly enough, that's a that's actually a classic, like... Uh, uh, Dr. Gregory Bonson move like he has a whole lecture where he where he basically laid out that argument about uh, you just being like a like a machine you ne you're stupid naturalist and blah 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 so yeah that is uh, that's a classic classic um, because it's I mean it's just a Protestant uh, thing that for some reason um, Orthodox have uh, have decided that they love and um, also apparently Catholics now. That's a little bit wondering. It's a little bit worrying, not wondering. The scientific method cannot justify the scientific method. Ortho gang assemble. Okay, somebody asked me where why is presuppositionalism bad that would be a whole show in itself so i'm going to try to get michael on here Okay. Well, I look forward to it. I heard your debate with uh, Nicholas Fuentes, and I, I thought that was very entertaining. And um, so I, I respect your debate skills, that's for sure. Well, thank you. I've yet to lose a debate, actually. <laughs> Except the one in our in Discord. Don't forget about that one. Why are you watching the intro before the stream? R.C. Sproul is a good talk on pre-sub. Yeah, yeah, R.C. Sproul. Uh, he was one of the people within um, the Reformed who, who fought, fought them. On the what basis do you say it's bad? On what basis? By what standard, dude? No, I'm just gonna watch the whole intro because I love it. 
That's why. Good evening, Militant. Good evening, Ivan. It's the whole retro album as the introduction. Militant Thomas has a Discord? Yes, I do. Go back to the beginning and uh, explain when we debated. I did debate him. What are you doing watching the intro? It's in the latter stages of the popping up process to move it into the next phase, i.e. between two pages Bro, and the next page. This intro has been going on for five minutes. Oh, there you go. Pee-pee-poo-poo. Interesting. Let's see how long it goes on. Oh. Speak of the devil. Jay Dyer's here. Okay, is there anything going to happen? I think I still have a playing. All right. Oh, there Welcome. you go. Today we get into Welcome, the mix. It's time to put the nail in the coffin for the Thomists. Really? Ooh. You know, the Thomists have really gotten on my nerves. I have. And I'm it's sorry. not because they got under my skin. It's because they don't listen. Oh, I don't listen. So I'm what sorry. we're going to do is we're going to put the final nail in the coffin for the last refuge that they have. The last refuge. This absurd objection. Well, actually, there's a series of absurd objections that relate primarily to things like apologetics, the source of argumentation, okay. the five ways, okay. God is pure act. Okay. Uh, what does it mean to be simple? What does it mean to be okay. composed? Are okay. creatures a composite of essence and existence, and therefore God is not a composite of essence and existence, and therefore simple? And that's how we know that there had to be a first simple cause. We're going to go through all this, and we're not going to okay. leave them any refuge to fall back on. We're going to demonstrate that there is a difference in the approach between Maximus and John Damascus in terms of Aristotle and the way Aquinas and Roman Catholicism uses it. We're going to be looking okay. at the 200 chapters of Maximus. We're okay. Be looking at the Ambigua. Oh, great. They, they haven't even touched these. They don't know anything about St. Maximus. They have, they have no clue. Guys that have been studying theology for two years, and they're calling me idiot. They're calling me a re I, I have uh, I have read uh, St. Maximus's Ambigua. I had to for a class, so no little bit. I mean, it's not insane. I'd have to give Byzantine Scotus... <clears throat> 
on here to uh, to talk about it. It's hard. I've been doing this for 20 years. 20 years. Don't you think I know a little bit about epistemology? Don't you think if you've even bit. done a basic philosophy grad class, you would know some of the, the ideas and things that I talk about? Don't you think I know a little bit about this after 20 years? But no, not only are they just completely arrogant. Arrogant. They're completely ignorant. Ignorant. It's literal Thomist. Say retard. Dunning Kruger. What is? What is Ox Kruger. What is Dumb Ox Kruger? What is a Dumb Ox Kruger? Oh, uh I get it now. Fact is what we're talking about here. So what we're going to talk about first is the five ways. We're going to talk about a lot tonight. Okay, they're not even going to be in the debate. The guys responding to me, they're not even in the debate. They don't even know what the issue was. I posted the Fesser article about Scotism. They don't even know why I posted it. They don't even know what a, what a formal distinction is. Well, okay, for everybody wondering, uh, Byzantine Scotus can tell you more about this, but basically a formal distinction is between two things which are inseparable but are not identical. So I don't know. Uh, I've talked to I've talked to Byzantine Scotus about it. I don't think it's much different than a virtual distinction, but uh, but we can we can hash that out some other time. So. In case you're wondering, that's what he's talking about. Stuff that I studied 10, 20 years ago. I was 10. doing graduate work on Aristotle 10 years ago. Bro, really? I thought you didn't graduate, right? You think I have some conception of these things? But no, they just act like demons. They act like... Wait, weren't you like a Jew or a pagan or like something like that 20 years ago? Interesting. Very interesting. You got to watch the Diamond Bro streams to get the background. Literal demons. And they're going to get crushed tonight. We're going to crush the thomas and, and i enjoy it because the more that they do this, the more i crush them and the more converts we make so let's start by talking about uh do you converts do you even go to divine liturgy dude um the five ways we're, we're going to talk about the starting point of our theology this is one area where we differ we don't start in our theology typically speaking with abstract philosophical speculation and the first place that we can see that is a difference of approach in the way that john damascus approaches these questions now I did a talk three, almost four years ago on the okay. fount of knowledge where I went through and I covered every specific way in the fount of knowledge in which John Damascus uses Aristotle in the proper way. Now, methoma and classical atheists continue to lie. and Methoma, classical atheists? <laughs> Bro, this is so funny. Like I'm attacking Aristotle and I don't even have any conception of the fact that the Eastern Fathers use Aristotle, even though I've sent them that, S that, that <laughs> from four years ago, which has had like 15, 20,000 views. They didn't watch. They don't care. They don't pay attention because they're not honest. And that's why they're hurting. That's why they're losing their people. When John Damascus begins his work on the exposition of the Orthodox faith, let's notice the difference in the order of theologia between this and Aquinas. When Aquinas begins assuming, he talks about the approach and methodology of theology. Is it a science or is it different from a science? And he goes into to saying, well, it's it's kind of both, but ultimately it's the hand, uh, theology uh, is the queen of science and philosophy is handmaiden. Of theology and that's not in itself is not a problem the problem is that when he begins to whether it's the summa contra gentiles the way he begins the work by speculating about the generic theism the first cause or whether it's the argumentation about the, the simplicity of god and the existence of god and god is pure act within the first few questions of the summa it's different than the approach of don damascus because they have a different perspective and that's what we're going to be highlighting today and this is ultimately going to lead us to number one why the five ways don't work why there are philosophical problems and ultimately why the transcendental argument is a better argument and the fact that all of those Classical arguments can be reformulated as transcendental arguments to make them valid. Now, again, these people don't know what they're talking about. They haven't spent 20 years studying epistemology and doing this kind of argument. I've been working in transcendental arguments for 20 years. I know what I'm talking about. How does John of Damascus begin the book? Does he begin with abstract speculations about the first move, uh, unmoved mover? 
So why does why does St. Thomas begin in the first question with theological method and then on to the existence of God and then the attributes of God that are knowable by philosophy? Why does he begin like that? Well, is it because St. Thomas thinks that's the order of being? Is it because he thinks that's the order of knowing? Well, if you read the introduction, you'd find out. And if you um, know anything about the way in which pedagogy works, the reason is because that's the order of teaching. That's how teaching happens. So. No, he begins by talking about God, not seeing God, apophatic theology, and the Father and the Trinity. He begins with the triad. That's the beginning of this work. That is a different ordo theologiae from what would become the norm in the late medieval and early medieval Latin West. Excuse me, in the early medieval and then late, late medieval West. Really, what would be the, J.J., I'm wondering, what would be the most popular theology textbook in the medieval West? The one which was much, much more popular and influential than the Summa, which really didn't gain um, an insane amount of prom prominence until the post-Reformation era. What would it be? Well, luckily for me, I have Lombard sentences right here. Let's see, book one, how it begins. I'm going to go to the table of contents. It's completely by accident that I had this. Oh, look at that. The... First distinction. Okay. Dang, that's a, a chapter heading. It's good. Okay. So first, he begins with theological method. All teaching concerns things and signs, and then enjoying and usage. That's interesting. Um, distinction two. What, is, what does he do right after that? On Trinity and unity. Hmm. Very interesting. Distinction three, he talks about the revelation of the Trinity in creation. Okay. Distinction four, whether God the Father generated himself as a God. This is very interesting that this stupid and dumb Latin theologian is beginning with the Trinity. You would not expect that. Okay. Oh, man, this is still going. Distinction 26, on the name of hypostasis, distinction 27, the properties by which the persons are distinguished. This, is very, this isn't looking good, Jay. Father is the beginning from eternity, distinction 29, distinction 30. On the things which are said of God in time and relatively, according to an accident which befalls creatures, but not God. Give me up, note, note, chapter 2, Holy Spirit is called granted, given relative. Oh no, distinction 31. Whether the sun is called equal. This is not looking good, Jay. It looks like the whole first book, and I have read it, so I know the last few distinctions do not cover Trinitarian theology. But look at that. Very interesting. Beginning with the Trinity. Stupid Latin theology shouldn't be able to do that. And then look, on, on creation, book two. So, that is very interesting, Jay. I am, I, I'm just flabbergasted. That seems like a very basic mistake. You should have known better since you were a Thomist for 50 million years. You should have at least read his commentary on the sentences by now. That, that, is, that is very silly, Jay.
That is very silly. So let's continue. Uh, coming to fruition, right? About, you could say the time of Aquinas. And then into Trent, and then into fruition. Okay, let's, uh, let's see the that rest of That is a different history. order of theologia from what would become the norm in the late medieval and early medieval Latin West. Notice he said early medieval. And even late medieval, it was basically just commentaries on the sentences in order to Excuse me, in the early medieval and then late, late medieval West. Uh, coming to fruition, right? About, you could say the time of Aquinas. And then into Trent, and then into... Coming to fruition in the time of Aquinas. Vatican I, where you have the final codification of classical foundationalism uh, throughout the statements of Vatican Classical I. foundationalism. In terms of epistemology. The epistemological approach of the apologetic in Vatican I is obviously classical foundationalism. Obviously. Now, um, John Damascus does go on to talk about Romans 1. He talks about wisdom 13.5. He talks about the continuity between the Old and New Testament, providence, and tradition. So he begins his theology with revelation. You see this difference. This is a different order of theology, and this is one of the key matters where for a long time orthodox theologians have been arguing against saint thomas begins with revelation because what is saint thomas's view of of philosophy that it's natural revelation but even then you still have not substantiated that this is the majority position in the latin west you have not because there's clear evidence to the contrary when it comes to the most popular textbook which every theology student in order to be a master, had to write a commentary on every single one of them. It began with what? You had a small section of prolegomena about things and signs, and then revelation about the Trinity. That's what it began by. The Thomistic and Latin perspective. Not because the, it doesn't matter temporally or logically where you start your theology, the issue is the metaphysical priority, you see. This is a problem. This is an issue in philosophy. Basil actually discusses this in his letters where he talks about mistaking logical and epistemological priority for metaphysical priority. So in other words, because, for example, a lot of Thomists, they'll begin their theology and they'll talk about five ways. They'll talk about remotion. They'll talk about uh, causality. They'll talk about teleology. And they'll think that because the, a lot of people have converted or because we're starting in the in the temporal process of our reasoning from that point, that therefore those principles, teleology, causality, et cetera, efficient causality, they have then some metaphysical primacy or certitude that other types of things don't have, right? Namely the existence of God. So the assumption of the Thomists and all the classical foundationalists is that you can't objectively, definitively pr prove a certainty, the existence of God. That's ultimately a matter of faith, but you can show with rational certitude to a degree that a God exists. Wait, wait, what did he Oh my, that was almost really bad. That other types of things don't have, right? Namely, the existence of God. So the assumption of the Thomists and all the classical foundationalists is that you can't objectively, definitively pr prove a certainty, the existence of God. That's ultimately a matter of faith, but you can show with rational certitude to a degree that... No, they would say absolute certainty when it comes to the existence of God. So that's just wrong. A God exists, and then later on you can tack on with probability that that God is a trinity or Jesus. What? <laughs> No, no, no. When it comes to no, oh my gosh, this this is giving this is giving me correct. We have to listen to that again. That's ultimately a matter of faith, but you can show with rational certitude to a degree that a God exists, and then later on you can tack on with probability that that God is a Trinity or Jesus. This is totally the methodology of I've read the Summa Contra Gentiles. This is how he begins the entire book one. Saint Thomas would not affirm a. Uh, a <laughs> What, what did he call it? That a God exists, and then later on you can tack on with probability. Probable, certain? No, no, no. He he would not say probability. No, 
because again, you have to you have to remember that the arguments that he gives for the Trinity, because he would say that Trinity is only known through faith, which is a certain type of infallible knowledge. It's an infallible um, intellectual assent to certain articles of faith, <clears throat> including the Trinity, for the very sake of the fact that God revealed them. So it's so just because it's not by faith doesn't mean that it's merely probable. It's just because it's in the modality of special revelation. In the modality of special revelation, we have that infallible certainty. But when it comes to the modality of natural revelation, when it comes to the modality of nature, we can only have a certain uh, probable certitude. Yes, we can. Because um, the arguments for the Trinity or only those to show that it is fitting and not necessarily demonstrative proofs like the proofs for the existence of God. So that that's just really weird that he said that. Either that God is a Trinity or Jesus. This is. Oh, look. Um, Al Yosha Tai. I'd like a mock icon of Luther, Calvin, and Aquinas and Anselm bowing to Augustine. Cool. You're so cool. Totally the methodology of, I've read the Summa Contra Gentiles. This is how he begins. The entire book one is about demonstrating a common generic theism. And once you've demonstrated the common generic theism through natural theology, you then tack on top of that arguments from Revelation, arguments uh, about the personhood of Christ and so forth. Because those are revealed truths and they're distinct. They're a, a tier below supernatural truths, right? No, 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 no. We would distinguish between, they're, they're both revealed by God. That's what we'd say. So they both um, are really the same in certainty. We both can be valuable certainty, but the way in which we can know each one of them is through a different modality, either through the modality of special revelation or the modality of natural revelation. Because uh, some things like the Trinity or the Incarnation are certain, only through the modality of divine revelation. But you can have probable arguments from fittingness. But when it comes to those things like the existence of God, they are revealed both through the modality of special revelation and through natural revelation. So you can know them in different ways. It, it isn't two-tier Thomism, Henry de Lubac, it's not that garbage. Ma nouvelle theologie. Everybody knows this. Nature and supernature, nature and grace. These are the basic, fundamental two-tiered system of Thomism. <laughs> now, we don't see that in the beginning of St. John. Two tiers. No, dude, it's two modes. The, the two-mode system of Thomism. Two-tier, that's such a meme. Read, read Feingold, if you, guys are, if you guys are wondering. And his work on the Beatific Vision. Or just read Lagrange, or just read, I don't know, Grenier, um, or any of the other uh, manuals. Actually, there's not many of the manuals of um, Thomistic philosophy, which are still in print, but I have all of them, and I'm looking to reprint all of them, because a lot of them are just in public domain, um, just sitting unprinted, but I will get to all that. Basic, fundamental two-tiered system of Thomism. Now, we don't see that in the beginning of St. John Damascus's approach. He begins in a different place 
from Aquinas. He begins with revealed theology. He then moves into the doctrine of inspiration. He moves into the doctrine of revealed theology showing us a personal God. The first cause that he talks about after discussing the starting point of revelation, revealed theology, there is a first cause. Yeah, and that first cause is a personal God, a he. Guess who else said that? Maximus the Confessor. Maximus does not teach natural theology. Does Maximus at times say natural law? Of course. And what all these dumb Thomists did was assume the word concept fallacy, as if because the terminology is the same, that the meanings and the theology are all the same. That's a basic level, basic bitch mistake when it comes to philosophy and theology. There's different terminology in different contexts. Yeah, that's the true. The word logos doesn't mean the same thing in Marcus Aurelius as it does in John 1. Obviously, because in John 1, it's Jesus. Marcus Aurelius doesn't mean Jesus, right? Hypostasis in Plotinus doesn't mean the same thing as hypostasis in the New Testament. Obviously. So much of Roman Catholicism's confusion and Thomism in terms of its confusion is over terminological equivalence in the word concept fallacy. There have been and much of your confusion is just I, I, I honestly don't get this argument. Like his whole argument thus far has basically been St. Thomas has a different order of teaching than St. John of Damascus. Therefore, St. Thomas stupid and wrong and and hates God. I, I honestly don't get it because I mean, St. John of Damascus, uh, he was groundbreaking with his method of theology from the other earlier Greek fathers who always had a polemical method. Is St. John of Damascus just dumb and wrong now because he has a different method of theology? St. Thomas Aquinas was different than a lot of the Latin West, although other summas had been written. It just it just doesn't make any sense. Why don't you like. Okay, so Masuma, Masuma Contra Gentiles, just read the commentary on the sentences or the compendium theologiae or, or literally anything. Man, it doesn't make any sense. Many theologians. Well, no, not just me. I'm, I'm merely echoing what the top 20th century theologians in the Orthodox Church have said. They're calling it neo-Palamism. It's just a restatement of what we've been saying the whole time. It's what Lasky says. It's what Florovsky says. It's what Father Stanley says. It's what Yanaro says. All these very well-known Orthodox theologians, all explicating all the things that I say. Before Pharrell, they were saying all this before Pharrell wrote God, History, Dialectic. So they have all these ad hominems and all these, these against the man attacks where they say that, oh, you're just following Pharrell. Oh, you're, you're, you invented all this stuff. No, I'm just literally reciting what Borowski says, what Lasky says. And I demonstrate that in all the talks. If you would actually just listen to the talks that I've done, but you can't do that. You're all too low IQ. Who cares what all of these 20th century Orthodox theologians said? That doesn't really prove your point. It's just name dropping. It's the Dalmach Kruger effect when it comes to Thomas. I know because I've been there. I've been a hardcore Thomist who wouldn't listen to correction. And I was arrogant. I thought I knew it all, and I didn't know it all. Now, when it comes to John Damascus, we want to point out the first point, which is that John Damascus uses a transcendental argument, and this contradicts both Methoma and Dr. Malpass, because Dr. Malpass argued that nobody... Dr. Malpass. Who is he talking about? Who is Dr. Malpass? Let me see. Oh yeah, I need to check the chat. You guys have, you guys have. How old is Jay? Um, I think about. I think he's in his forties. Jew? Yes, he was a Jew for a while. He definitely was a Jew. Somebody pointed that out to me, and. Yeah, the Dabin scene does actually be begin with the cosmological argument. Let me see. Let me look up the fount of orthodoxy. About the about the Debunkim. 
Doing a new advent. Both the exposition of the Orthodox faith. Okay, let me see. Proof that there is a God. Okay. Oh, wait. <laughs> I, how did I? Okay, let's, let's stop that screen. Bro, absolutely debunked in like 30 seconds in a Google search real quick. Okay. Proof that there is a God. Let's see. Let's see what he does. That there is a God then is no matter of doubt to those who receive the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, I mean, in the New, nor indeed to most of the Greeks. Whoa, nor indeed to most of the Greeks. Crazy. For as we said, the knowledge of the existence of God is implanted in us by nature. But since the wickedness of the evil one has prevailed so mightily against man's nature, even as even to drive some into denying the existence of God, that most foolish and woefulest pit of destruction, whose folly David, revealer of the divine meaning, exposed when he said the fool said in his heart, there is no God. So the disciples of the Lord and his apostles, made wise by the Holy Spirit, and working wonders in his power and grace, took them captive in the net of miracles and drew them out of the depths of ignorance to the light of the knowledge of God. In like manner, also their successors in grace and worth, both pastors and teachers, having revealed, received the enlightening grace of the Spirit, were wont alike by the power of miracles and the word of grace to enlighten those walking in darkness and to bring back the wanderers into the way of teaching. But as for us, who are not recipients either of the grace of miracles or the gift of teaching, for indeed we have rendered ourselves unworthy of those by our passion for pleasure. Come, let us in connection with this theme discuss a few of those things which have been delivered to us on this subject by the expounders of grace, calling on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. All things that exist are either created or uncreated. If then things are created, it follows that they are wholly mutable. So notice. If they're created, they um, can change. For things whose existence originated in change must also be subject to change, whether it be that they perish or that they become other than they are by act of will. For if things are uncreated, they must in all consistency be also wholly immutable. For things which are opposed in the nature of their existence must also be opposed in the mode of their existence. That is to say, they must have opposite properties. Who then will refuse to grant that all existing things, not only such as come within the province of the senses, but even the very angels are subject to change and transformation and movement of various kinds. For the things appealing to the rational world, I mean angels and spirits and demons, are subject to the changes of will. Whether it is a progression or a retrogression in goodness, whether a struggle or a surrender, while the others surrender changes of generation, of destruction, of increase and decrease, of quality and of movement in space. Things then that are mutable are also wholly created, but things that are created must be the work of some maker. Hmm. And the maker cannot have been created. For if he had been created, he also must surely have been created by someone, and so on till we arrive at something uncreated. The creator then being uncreated is also wholly immutable. And what can this be other than the deity? Hmm. Very interesting. I'm not going to read the rest of that. 
Jadar debunked by literally a Google search. Very interesting. Okay. And then I'm going to. Yeah, I have not. I read probably about like. Do you have my copy on my shelf? No, I do not have my copy on my shelf. Probably read it like a year and a half ago. Yeah, Thomas knows John of Damascus much better than Dyer. Okay, I am going to keep checking the chat. Vatican one and not say ladder and four. It, yeah, it is. It is basically ladder and four. The classical foundationalism was uh, was okay. Everybody is debating about medieval philosophy in the chat. Nice, nice. Please, please debunk more dire. Yeah, I uh, I definitely will because. This seems to be very popular. <laughs> Dyer is wearing Russian Adidas Makba 1980s Olympics. <laughs> oh, man, dude. That is... Okay. I think Christian said somewhere the other day that Luther is actually one of his favorite prot theologians. No, he's my least favorite prot theologian. <laughs> Just gone from Orthodox to Rome. Debunk Dyer more. Okay. I definitely will. You guys seem to really like it. Okay. Um, I'm, just, I'm still 10 minutes behind. I'm quickly trying to go through the chat to see if there's... See if there's anything else before I continue. Oh, he's using Joseph Farrell's arguments that the Eastern Ordo Theologiae theologians going from person to essence instead of essence to person. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is actually where, where is it? I wrote an article basically on this, on the superiority of Latin Trinitarian synthesis. You know, let, let's just make this a whole thing. I'm going to the article right now. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I've read about a few authors. So uh, Nicolas covers this. Um, Lagrange covers this. Um, the Sacred Theologia Summa has a whole appendix on their volume on the Trinity about this. So yeah, that is a myth. Okay, let's see. I read a few paragraphs about this, so I guess I'll just read and kind of explain. So, first, a brief misconception must be dispelled. It was popular in early 20th century historical theology to speak of a very strict difference between the Latins and Greeks along the line of such. Latin philosophy, first of all, envisions the nature in itself and proceeds to the supposit. Greek philosophy, first of all, envisions the supposit and then penetrates it so as to find the nature. The Latin thinker considers personality as a mode of the nature. From this, it is concluded, therefore, the Latins were inclined to search for the reason of the processions in the divine nature and in its imminent activities. Here we find the origin of psychological theory about the divine processions stated by St. Augustine, brought to perfection through St. Anselm by St. Thomas. Among the Greeks, however, none of this is found, and the processions are not thought of as activities of the nature, but as donations, blah, blah, blah. So, okay, now the reasons for this myth. 
The reason behind this myth was usually to discredit Latin theology and prefer Greek theology. So this was in a lot of the Nouvelle Theologie. Namely, these authors generally sought to eliminate from Trinitarian theology, one, psychological analogies of the Trinity, as you see also in J. Dyer. This is making a lot more sense now. It, J. Dyer's, J. Dyer's Nouvelle Theologie, boys, we got it. And two, hypostatic appropriations, i.e. that when sacred scripture speaks of a certain person of the Trinity doing X, it is truly one and undivided Trinity acting. To the principle, we may answer, from the perspective of Trinitarian theology, the schema drawn from the artificial opposition between the respective philosophies of the person and that of the nature is extremely simplistic. The Greeks would first of all consider the three persons and their distinction, and the Latins would base their reflection on the one nature. This is to forget that the Greeks found the reflection on the Bible, which proclaims God's unity before speaking in the New Testament about the distinct persons. In reality, for every theologian, the three persons together are the one God. He who considers the distinction of the persons must at the same time consider the unity of the nature. For the one indivisible divine nature is what the Father communicates to the Son, and the Son and the Father to the, the Holy Spirit. He who considers the nature must at the same time consider the, the distinction of the persons. For the one nature subsists in three divine persons. No theology could privilege one of the two considerations to the detriment of the other without simultaneously distorting the consideration that he intends to privilege. To the two conclusions given, it is simply not the case that the Greek fathers are ignorant of such. Regarding appropriations, St. Basil writes, he sanctifies and vivifies and enlightens and consoles, and all things like that are done equally by the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Therefore, the identity in the Father and the Son and the Spirit clearly show the absolute likeness of nature. End quote. Regarding psychological analogies, St. John of Damascus writes, quote, Since God is everlasting and perfect, he will have his words subsistent in him, and everlasting and living, and possessed of all the attributes of the begetter. For just as our word, proceeding as it does out of the mind, is neither wholly identical with our mind, and so on and so forth. The psychological analogy is clear for St. John of Damascus. But there is a true difference between um, the Latin synthesis of Trinitarian theology and the Greek, but it is not uh, the one that they make up. So I am going to just put that article in the chat real quick if you guys are interesting. Okay, there you go. And I'm going to... Yes, still literally all the scholars he mentions are pretty much the Nouvelle Theologie of Eastern Orthodoxy. I think, honest, well, I think honestly, he's just Nouvelle Theologie. It all makes sense now. Okay, I'm just going to keep going down. And then I'll continue. I probably only can stay for another 20 or 30 minutes. Debate Dyer, okay. Okay, so sorry guys. If you have anything super important, um, yeah, the chat is way too too many to go through. So if you have anything really important, send me a super chat. That's just gonna how it's gonna be when there's forty of you. Okay, so let's continue. I saw uh, a transcendental argument in Aristotle's Metaphysics Seven until I don't know what he thinks later. 
philosophers. And so he wrote some essay trying to show that it's not a transcendental argument. Well, okay. Uh, I don't really ultimately care what you think about Aristotle and his transcendental argument because I can show you that John Damascus thought that Aristotle in book seven was giving a transcendental argument. So what, what, where does that transcendental argument comes from? Do I still have the book on my shelf? I'm not sure. But no, I don't. So the one and only um, proof for the existence of God. That is the title of the book. Do you want to know who wrote it? Does anybody want to guess? Can anybody guess in the chat right now who wrote the one and only existence? I mean, the one and only argument for the existence of God. Anybody want to? Come on. Come on. Okay, nobody nobody can guess it. It was by Immanuel Kant. So if you mean by Aristotle and John at Damascus, Immanuel Kant and Cornelius Van Til, then you would be correct. Tyre, Albert Einstein, Bonson. I think Bonson wrote the same work of the same. Yep, somebody guessed it, Kant. Okay, then everybody is arguing about bad words. So let me show you this first. This is going to be one of our starting points to once again show there is no anywhere in Aquinas a transcendental argument. It's not possible in that epistemology because it is essentially, and this is an anachronism, this, it is a classical foundationalist epistemology. I know that they didn't use the terminology classical foundationalism in his day. That's a later post-enlightenment terminology, but it's the same idea, so it doesn't matter. I'm even hung up on the stupid terms. What matters? There's a difference between us. We have post-enlightenment terminology you have post-enlightenment philosophy that's the difference which is the meaning of the terms so here we see uh in the fount of knowledge john damascus says there are some who have endeavored to do away with philosophy entirely saying that it doesn't exist he's talking about the sophists these are the sophists that aristotle in book seven of metaphysics is replying to how is it that you, they will answer we will answer them by saying how is it that you say there is neither philosophy nor knowledge nor perception is it by your knowing and perceiving it or by your not knowing and perceiving it if you have perceived it well that is knowledge and perception but if it is by your not knowing it, then no one will believe you as long as you're discussing something of which you have no knowledge. Since, therefore, there is such a thing as philosophy, and since that there is knowledge of things that are, let us talk about being. All right, I'm, gonna, I'm about to delete this stupid Thomist in the chat because, I mean, these people come into the chat and they don't even know what they're talking about. They say, oh, will you please debate my big brother? Please debate Dr. Jared Goff. Please debate Edward Fesser. Uh, 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 I won't debate you, but, but please debate my big brother. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm talking about natural revelation, dude. That's not natural theology. Dude, natural revelation, Maximus, dude. Natural revelation. It's just Maximus, natural, this is natural revelation, if dude. Logos, if you knew was, the no logie doctrine, because he would... goes to great lengths to discuss it in the ambiguum. You dude, idiot. Yeah, you idiot. You're stupid. Yeah, Louis the Ninth. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking you're about. You're out of here. You're stupid. Get Thomists out of here. Are dying out. Dying. You're a bunch of losers. Bunch of losers. Get gone. Get gone. You're a bunch of losers. This is this is the best. I, I really like this. Thank you, Jay, for giving us this. Bro. Bro. They don't even know what a transcendental argument is. You don't even how, know. If they're teaching the same thing between John Damascus and Thomas Aquinas, how is it that John Damascus does a transcendental argument and Thomas never does? That's because they don't teach the same thing, dummies. Since then, there's, no, there's such a thing as a philosophy, and since there's a knowledge of the things that are, let us talk about being. However, one should understand that we are beginning 
with that division of philosophy, which concerns reason, which is a tool of philosophy rather than one of its divisions, because it is used for every demonstration. So for the present, we shall discuss simple terms, which through simple concepts signify simple things. Then after we have explained the meanings of the words, we shall investigate dialectic. So the beginning of fountain knowledge, you see uh, a very clear presentation against sophists. Again, this is Aristotle does this in book seven of the metaphysics, where he argues against the sophists by saying through reductio, uh, if you deny the laws of logic, you assume them in arguing against them. And that's a transcendental argument. Now, these dummies don't even know what a transcendental argument is. And they say, that's not one. It is one. It is. Go look it up. Go look up the Stanford philosophy encyclopedia. And the first citation will be Aristotle's metaphysics. Now, ultimately, I don't care whether Aristotle did or didn't. It's not ultimately dependent upon Aristotle. But I'm just saying these idiots are so hard-headed and they don't listen. And here, John of Damascus is doing a transcendental argument. And he thought, obviously, that's from book seven of metaphysics. That's what, Aristotle, that's what John of Damascus thought Aristotle was saying. So that also disproves Malpass, who says that this was all cooked up and, and nobody before the modern era or whatever thought that uh, Aristotle was doing a transcendental argument. It doesn't have to use the name transcendental argument if it's the same form of argumentation. Don't be an anachronistic moron. The terms aren't what matters. The meaning is what matters. That's what St. Jerome says about translations. And he's right about all this stuff. Now, <clears throat> I'm not... St. Thomas in Against the Errors of the Greeks also says that about translation, just in case you're wondering. The meaning is what matters. That's what St. Jerome says about translations. And he's right about all this stuff. Now, I'm not saying terms never matter. I'm just saying that ultimately what matters is the meaning of the terms. All these papal lawyers. Um, so we're starting with this idea. We're starting with the different ordo theologic. Orthodoxy has a different ordo theologic from both Protestantism and Thomism slash Roman Catholicism. And we, we point that out because most of the time the critics, the people that are objecting to it, fall into thinking, and because they're trapped in either or dialectics all the time, they fall into thinking that you are saying what Calvinists say. Uh, uh, because I don't understand what you're saying, uh, and because I remember one time I heard that Bonson and Van Til said this, you are just a Calvinist. Nice genetic fallacy, dude. As if the source of an argument had anything to do with the, with the truth or falsity or validity of the argument. Did you not just listen to me say that Aristotle did a transcendental argument? Right. Bro, that's some classical foundationalism that you're falling into, not going to lie. You have to you have to know the coherence, dude. And since it comes from, comes from the stupid Calvinists, Van Til and Bonson, Bro, it's coherence. Do I agree with Aristotle on every topic? No. Do I think that Aristotle is wrong on every topic? No. So let's be more nuanced and not be retards here, okay? <laughs> nuanced, dude. So the source of an argument has nothing to do with its validity. That's why it's not a genetic fallacy. I can say Aristotle got things right. I can say Aristotle got things wrong. It doesn't hurt my theology. I can say Bonson got things right. I can say Bonson got things wrong. So, yeah, and the thing with Van Til and Bonson is there was just this this whole, you know what, now that I think of it, Van Til and Bonson and the presuppositionalists were kind of like the Nouvelle Theologie of, of, uh, of uh, Reformed theology, now that I think of it. But yeah, the, the, the reason that, yeah, it would be a genetic fallacy if that was the only argument. But there was this whole uh, philosophical um, framework in which they brought in uh, with, with presuppositional apologetics. It was a whole philosophical framework, which they were honest about. It's not an either or. It's not a holistic thing. It's very nuanced and it's very clear. Now, I've been putting out for years, talks and recommendations on all these topics and all the objections that these guys are putting up, all these Thomas, they're objections I've answered for years. And when I send them the objections, they don't care. They don't listen, right? That's the problem. Now, 
let's talk about one specific point uh, after we talk about the fact that our ordo theology is not Calvinism. It's not uh, Thomism, right? So it's not uh, an elogia fide, which is the Calvinist order of theology, the Calvinist epistemology, where you only know what's supposedly revealed in scripture, which is impossible because of the doctrine of total depravity. The noetic effects of sin and Calvinism are affecting you such to such an extent that you could never explicitly or certainly know anything in scripture uh, with certitude because they have such a radical and absurd doctrine of total depravity. Okay, so that was another really stupid thing. Let me just pull up a work for you. Okay. This is by Richard Hooker. The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. Let me share my screen. It's by... Sorry, I messed this up. It is by Davenant press to modern english for you guys reading pleasure this i'm telling you this this is just absolutely against the the silliness that he said about the calvinist view denying um that saying that we can only know things through faith through scripture no that's just stupid um the reformed accept natural theology and natural law just as much as you do it's just stupid to say otherwise at least historically so um i guess i'll fit, find a good stopping point and uh listen to a few more minutes because i need to go soon i think it's almost dinner time oh wait i need to share my screen again okay yeah so he he just absolutely floundered when it comes to the reformed way of thinking on this okay i'm gonna go up to make sure there aren't any super chats okay secondly when it comes to thomism we don't believe in the energy of this all right now again i know it's hard for the low iq thomas out there to to read books other than the summa the, the summas that they actually haven't read because they're actually just figuring this stuff out right they're like guys that are two years into thomism and think they've mastered it trying to debate people that have spent 10 20 years in it uh there's a really good book by yaroslav pelikan okay and he's gonna if you read this book mm. he will give you a profound and in-depth bro the sticky notes introduction to how christianity in the ancient world encountered and dealt with the challenges of hellenism so what you've heard me talking about that you just laugh at and deride it's all in normal scholarship on these topics right i've read all of pelican series i've read the whole five volume set of the christian tradition and i've also read this i read it 10 years ago now what i would say is that if you guys really want to know what's going on I, you should listen to the recommendations i've given you and what you'll get in this book is a, an accurate presentation an overview of the nuances of how those early eastern fathers principally i mean he does talk about western fathers too but mainly because of the preeminence of the eastern fathers in triadology and Christology, he talks about their encounter with Hellenism and classical culture. So it has nothing to do with constantly referring to Dr. Farrell. By the way, God, History, and Dialectic is a great book. It's a great series summarizing the early church fathers' encounter with Hellenism and dialectics. This is another one, okay? So when Pelican begins the book, he's... Is this just going to be a two-hour book rec... Uh, make an assertion, don't prove it, and then just book recommendation session? It's very interesting. Starts by talking about the different approaches he talks about the importance of revelation he talks about um how the church fathers in the east did not see a disjunction between faith and reason okay so right there we know that we're not doing 
Fideism, we're not doing uh, no apologetics, right? This is this is coming from the quarters of pietism, the quarters of so-called orthodoxy who say don't do polemics and don't do apologetics. No, actually, you're completely out of, out of line with the entire early uh, first eight centuries of church fathers. They all do apologetics. They all do polemics. And Pelican shows that very clearly within the first few chapters. Now, I'm not citing Pelican because I'm telling you not to actually read those, those church fathers. I have read them all. I've read all the orations. I've read Basil's letters. Uh, I've read Nyssa against Eunomius. I've read Basil against Eunomius. I've read Athanasius at length. I've read uh, catechetical lectures. Uh, I've read the Eastern Fathers in depth, right? Maximus, John Damascus, right? I'm not telling you not to read them. I'm just saying that a lot of the people who are engaging in this debate, who don't even know what they're talking about, could benefit from reading a few secondary sources that are not Thomists, right? Pelican eventually, I believe, converted to Orthodox. He was a Lutheran for a long time and ended up Orthodox. And you'll see that he has a very in-depth and nuanced approach to the Eastern Fathers. And he actually explicates in here, as all the other people that I talk about do, the difference between the Thomistic approach to natural theology, Hellenism, etc., and the, the approach of the Eastern Fathers. Now, uh, against, the against the Calvinists, we want to point out that, uh, so we do do apologetics against the Phaedias, but against the Calvinists, we want to point out that we don't believe that man is so fallen that he can't ever reason properly or that he can't do uh, virtuous things, right, without so-called, as they call it, uh, common grace. Man can still do those things because he still retains the image of God. And this is where we disagree with the Calvinists is over the extent of the doctrine of the fall. There was some like 20th century um, reformed thinkers who said that the image of God was erased in man. Um, I'm thinking maybe late 19th century Dutch thinkers also, Dutch reformed thinkers. But yeah, that's not the... It, historical reform position when it comes to the ability to reason um in fallen man <clears throat> and uh with the image of god so so again i'm stressing that the orthodox view is neither calvinist nor roman catholic or thomist it's not scotist either by the way natural theology in the conception of the eastern fathers according to pelican is ultimately not just uh, a speculative philosophical exercise but it's an apologetic approach and we would agree with that, right? Because when Maximus goes to great lengths to, to explain and explicate what he means by natural theology and natural law, he actually says it's Jesus, you see. So it's teaching the Logi. That's what's going to be so key here. Thomistic theology does not and cannot have a doctrine of the Logi, right? That's crucial. That's the big difference here. When we read Father Stan Eloy, that's how he begins the first few pages of the book, is by pointing out how and why we don't have natural theology. We're going to go into all, by the way, the specific five arguments in five ways. I'm just trying to help you guys out and point you in the direction of things that would help you understand our position. Even if you don't come to the same conclusions of, of what we, we say, it would at least help you not to make dumbass arguments and stupid arguments and reply to things that I never said and make up straw men and not even understand what we're saying. Wouldn't you want to at least understand the position instead of just these dishonest characterizations? Pelican writes that, the complex interactions of this natural theology as an apologetic uh, is a presupposition. For in these classical systems, natural theology tended to present itself as an alternative to the cultic practices and paganism of their day. The traditional religious observances, right, in the pagan Roman Empire he's talking about, its principal expositors, expositors were not the official spokesmen for traditional observance, nor the priests of the cult, but by lay philosophers and apologists. And there he talks about the Cappadocians. But when we start to understand what is meant by natural theology, it's not exactly what the Thomas thinks, is it? Because we're going to start immediately getting into the doctrine of revelation. I just showed you that John of Damascus begins his book with revelation. The next chapter of Pelican is about negation, 
apophatic and cataphatic theology. Now, when he goes into explaining the Eastern Fathers' usage of apophatic theology, and when he talks about analogia, this is on pages 43 to 44, he talks about the logos, and not just the logos, but the logi in creation. That is the uncreated logi in creation, and their energies. For us, there is an analogia. Let's get this, this clear. Maybe I can help uh, our, our slower audience out here that are the Thomas. <laughs> Even though I've already done this in talks, which they don't listen to. And I'm sure that some uh, Orthodox people will fuss because they don't understand what we're talking about either. But just to make this a little clearer for you, analogia entis, right? The analogy of being, this is the Thomistic scheme whereby we reason up from creatures, created things to the divine essence, to that first simple uh, non-composite pure act cause of all things, which is God. Right? That would be correct. We know God through created effects. Right. Analogia fide, that is the analogy of faith. That's the Calvinist. Well, we naturally know God through created effects. Obviously, when it comes to special revelation and then the, um, the lumen gratia, the light of grace, um, it is through a especially special modality. It's, but this is just talking about natural knowledge when it's the analogia entis. Of all things, which is God. Right? Analogia fide, that is the analogy of faith. That's the Calvinist Protestant classical Reformation doctrine. That the only things that we can know are about God are the things that are told to us in the text of Scripture. Of course, again, with the... No, that's that's not it. Reformed doctrine of the fall until depravity, analogia fide doesn't work because the noetic effects of sin are such that man's reasoning capacity cannot even reason properly about scripture itself. So it's self-defeating to have the doctrine of total depravity at the same time as having the doctrine of the analogia fide. For us, you could say there is an analogia energia, right? Basil says that we do know God on the basis of the energies that come down to us and not his essence. This is letter 234. Basil is very clear in letter 234 that it's not the analogia, analogia entis, it's the analogia energia. And how do we do that? What's the different anthropological faculty that orthodoxy possesses in its dogmas that none of these other two possess? The doctrine of the noose. Noose. Right? Oh, the noose he got the it. Innermost heart. This, we believe, is the faculty that God gave man to know him directly. As a result of the fall, however, man's noose is clouded by sins and passions. So, therefore, the exercise of theosis, in part, is subjecting the intellect, ratiocinations, not destroying them, but subjecting them to the heart, the inner man. This is logotherapy in the truest sense. Okay. This is the process of theosis, is not putting the intellect above the heart, but putting the heart in unison and superior to intellect. We must repent in our intellect for the intellect to operate in its proper mode and sense. And again, this is one of the mistakes uh, that the hyper-spiritual so-called orthodox make, is that they think this means, oh, that means you don't do apologetics. Oh, excuse me. Uh, Palamas, the, the great expositor of this, did apologetics. Of course he did. Maximus did apologetics. So the way this works is that these things need to be in their proper ordering. In orthodox praxis and theology. And that, that's when you repent. This is this is the, the ordering of your hierarchy of your, your faculties. These two are in harmony, but this is prior because you have to repent before you can properly interpret the world. Does that mean that we don't do apologetics because nobody can properly interpret the world until they repent? No, we do apologetics so that they do repent. We can become a co-worker with God, as Paul says, to bring people to repentance. Now, ultimately, that's between God and them. We don't cause that. We can't make that happen. But Paul is very clear that we are co-workers with Christ in these efforts to convert people. Now, in Romans 1, Paul is very clear that man's heart is darkened, you see. Paul doesn't say that a man just needs to straighten out his intellectual capacities and reasoning back to a first cause in Romans 1. No, 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 no. Man's problem is not philosophic speculation and reasoning. It's his heart. He needs to repent. 
Well, that's what Paul says in Romans 1. There's nothing in Romans 1 about remotion, about philosophic speculation and descriptive processes back to a first cause. Is there a first cause? Yeah. But that first cause is God the Father, the Trinity, Jesus. Sounds like he's just talking about the light of grace. Not going to lie. Do, do, do you think we're Pelagians or something? It just, yeah, it, it doesn't seem like he's representing too charitably. I'm trying to find a, a good stopping point that wouldn't be awkward. Okay, I will I will try for a few more minutes to find a stopping point because obviously I won't be able to do all this today. That's the first cause. Not a series of causation and causal chains back to a supernatural first cause. We reason from natural causes back to a supernatural, which is an invalid leap in logic, by the way. It's a non sequitur, as I'll show you in a second. But we want to understand that this is a different anthropology that we have. They have no idea what you're talking about in Roman Catholic ecclesiology or anthropology or theology. When you talk about the news, they're like, what are you talking about? There's only body and intellect. That's all man is. That's not what we believe. Paul says body, soul, spirit, tripartite. Now, does this mean that the body is evil and doesn't matter? No, they're not in dialectics, dummies. They're not either ors. It's just a hierarchy of things. It's like the hierarchy of what matters most in your life. God matters most and then your loved ones, right? Does that mean that you hate your loved ones because God is at the top of the? No, that's stupid. Right? It's not either or, it's both and. So let's begin by ceasing to think in these dumb dialectics of either or. Because that's, by the way, going to be the main problem for all of the Thomists, especially the ones that I've argued with more recently in the last few weeks, who uh, only think that there's two possibilities. Either God is composed of accident and substance, or he's absolutely simple. That's the only two options in their mind. And we're going to see that that's actually a wrong false dialectic. That's why John Damascus does not conceive of God as composed of accident and substance. And yet at the same time, he thinks the uncreated energies are uncreated energies because they're not the same thing as accidents in God. Law of non-contradiction equals stupid Thomist, either or fallacy. Thank you. Very cool, Jay. When, when the Thomists go to John Damascus, they say, look, John Damascus says God's not composed of substance and accident. Therefore, uh, he teaches what we teach. No, dummy. Read the rest of the book. Because in book one, all the way to book three, he consistently argues for uncreated energies being distinct. <laughs> You're ignoring the whole book and taking out of context the fact that he says, and by the way, we believe that. We don't think God is composed of substance and accident. And guess what? Newsflash, uncreated energies aren't accidents. I don't mean an accident in the sense of a wreck. I mean accident in the substance accident scheme of Aristotle. And by the way, guess what? When we get to, John, uh, to Maximus, Maximus says that God is first cause, but he's also not first cause because God is first cause as it relates to creation. But as it relates to God from all eternity, theology proper, we can't use any of those terms about God. God as cause, sustaining uh, uh, agent and final cause, he says only apply to God in relation to creation in terms of the energies. They don't apply to God as he is. God is not a first principle. He begins the book rejecting the Thomistic scheme. It's everything that I keep telling you guys, but you don't listen. And instead of listening, you just want to be arrogant. There is an analogia, and these analogia are the terms and names that we use, the divine name. Okay, that should be a good stopping point. Let's look. Mark it off. 3850, so I'm going to take final questions. go back to i know it's just some of this stuff is just good in itself okay sounds like he's responding to jansenism it does okay probably after this stream is over dire will challenge militant thomas to debate oh gosh oh, he probably won't because he blocked me on twitter Debate me, Boomer Thomist. I will. I was a Thomist for 10 years, Dyer. Very cool, Jay.
like 45 minutes in and he still hasn't touched Actus Pierce. I know I was prepared to be like, okay, we're going to talk about the five ways he's going to bring together some, some bad arguments against the five ways. Okay. And then we're going to talk about Actus Pierce. Okay, good, good. Let's go. And you know what? He just talks about Manus, talks about the noose. And then he talks about the analogia entis being terrible. That, that That's all he talks about. And I'm like, okay, okay, very cool, Jay. Um, I'm just, just trying to just trying to uh, talk about pure act. I know he said intellect and body. That was that was terrible. It was soul and body. There's a big difference between intellect and body and soul and body. Yeah, body and soul. Exactly. How does he not know this? I know I was going to say something and I was like, ah, maybe he just slipped up. But I mean, if it's an often uh, slip up. God isn't first principle. If you're going to talk about the interior life of God, then he, he wouldn't be first principle obviously and uh, but if you're going to talk about um, qua creation uh, obviously it would be the first principle of creation if you're retarded to say otherwise the catholicism he's responding to is the catholicism he was a part of 2000s era sspx instead of Acontis chapels Christian Wagner, the smoking marijuana while reading the father's increased retention and comprehension. Um, why don't you ask Jay Dyer? Maximus says God is beyond causality with respect to himself. Yeah, obviously. I, I like I, I don't know why why Jay had to say that. Like, oh, God is God is first cause when it comes to creation, and it's not first cause when it comes to himself. Like, very cool, Jay. Like so. <laughs> like okay like w what are you what are you getting at there do I, do I just maybe i just don't have the news maybe i just have the news i once asked what jet dyer what metaphysical framework he was working with and he just said the bible with no further elaboration oh man well that is a good note to end it on so I guess I'll continue this tomorrow um, going off of 3850. Okay, I will see you all. And maybe we'll be on VC tonight on the Discord. We'll see if everybody else wants to talk on the Discord. So I will see you guys later. And Christ is risen from the dead. Hallelujah.